Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. For this episode, I spoke to Thomas Peter, a Reuters staff photographer based in Beijing, China. While we do talk about China, this is probably the first episode where we discuss the war in Ukraine in some detail. As Tom will tell us, the day after the Russian invasion, he was already crossing the border overland from Poland into Ukraine to cover the conflict. We'll talk about what he saw there, including the alternatively gruesome and banal details of covering a war. We will also discuss a colleague who was killed there named Max Levine. The other Reuters photographer we talk about is Danish Siddiqui, who was killed last year in Afghanistan, in case it's not clear from the context of our conversation. Tom's perspective on the war is particularly interesting given his background. He grew up in Soviet East Germany under communism, where the Russian influence was pretty clear. He then moved to London as a teenager, not knowing a word of English, where he eventually completed university in Russian studies before moving to Russia, where he spent most of his 20s. In that time, he would also travel to Ukraine on assignment. So naturally, when the war broke out, he raised his hand to go report on it. His background makes his perspective on Chinese-style communism equally interesting. We'll talk about his difficulties working there and also his coverage of the outbreak of COVID-19. He tried to get as close as possible to the epicenter of the outbreak in Wuhan, in central China, at a time when we barely even understood what the disease was. I'm sure Tom would take issue with me calling him brave, so I'll keep this in general terms. The journalists who take the biggest risks are clearly those behind the camera, photographers and videographers, who have to rush toward the danger when it breaks out. Text reporters do take risks, but often can keep a safer distance, while visual reporters need to witness events firsthand. Imagine hearing about an unknown virus in central China and having the courage to rush in to cover it, or volunteering to cover a war zone where a random shell could kill you unexpectedly. Honestly, I don't know what I'd do in those situations. But to the many photographers and videographers, they just see it as a necessary risk to their jobs and plunge right ahead. I'm sure they'd rightly say that the really brave people are the civilians and soldiers who are affected by the war through no choice of their own. But still, the risk is there for journalists, as we see by our fallen colleagues. So I'd like to dedicate this episode to the visual journalists, especially Ukrainian journalists, who continue to risk their lives so we can see the realities of the war there. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Thomas Peter, a Reuters staff photographer based in Beijing, China. Just to warm up a little bit, if you could let us know where you are geographically and a little bit about the physical space around you and a bit about your last week of work. I'm in my study in Beijing, which is pretty central, my house or my apartment. For those who know Beijing, just overlooking the Worker Stadium, which is currently being rebuilt. It's about like 20 minute cycle ride from the Forbidden City. So I'm pretty much in the old part of uh, Beijing, what used to be like the old center of Beijing. It's been quiet in China for photographers because of the zero COVID policy. We've been pretty much grounded. It's been a bit of a minefield trying to travel because you can always get snacked in China's zero COVID policy, which means that if you go somewhere and there's a case, uh, you might have to quarantine there or you can't return to Beijing for, for two weeks. So that means that uh, we've been all stuck here in Beijing with like not much going on. So it's been quiet for me the last couple of weeks. 
Cool. Okay. And then, I mean, we'll, we'll get back to what you do today in about an hour or so. But uh, <laughs> if uh, you could just roll back the clock for us and let us know a little bit about how where you started out, as in where were you born, um, and a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything made you interested in photography early on. I was born in uh, East Germany in a small town called Gera. It's got about 90,000 people. So behind the Iron Curtain, life was simple, but it made for a happy childhood. I had my bicycle, and it's a beautiful part of Germany, lots of forests and hills and mountains. So I spend all my f- spare time roaming around the forests and being kids. So that was good. Uh, life also came with the trappings of, uh, you know, a socialist society. I was a member of the Pioneer Organization. I took part in 1st of May, you know, Workers' Day marches. Oh, wow. And everything else um, you can imagine, you know, socialist state would put its people through, uh, which was normal at the time. We didn't mind it. It was just, it was part of life. And that indoctrination seemed very normal to us, right? The thing is, though, that there was one thing we could never attain, which was the West, the white world out there that was beyond the Iron Curtain. Uh, We could see it on TV. We could see what we were missing out. But we knew that we could never get there until things started to change and life started to change in ways. There was a slow, slow sort of progression. I could see it in TV. Um, my parents would talk about it. And then I saw people gather for demonstrations every Monday. They would stand out outside of our big church that was nearby my house uh, with candles they would put a sea of candles in front of the headquarters of the state police, the Stasi, which is like the, the East German KJB. And you could see that something was up. But no one believed that the world we knew, which was our little East German state, would finally fall in 89. But when it happened, it happened very fast and everyone's life changed drastically. How old were you in 89? I, I was 11. I was 11, so like I was just old enough to like take it all in. And I put the pieces together later when I was thinking back at that time. But like I do remember that feeling, which, which has pretty much stayed with me ever since, that feeling when hundreds or thousands of people get together to fight for a cause and they are convinced of being right. And a demonstration like this has a very sort of like a very strong impact on and everyone involved, everyone standing there, and I, that feeling of purpose has stayed with me every time I, you know, during my career, I attend a protest as, as, a, as a photographer. You can always feel when a protest is real, when a protest really means something, and people want that change. It's unmistakable. It's just there. Yeah. How exposed were you to the protests? Like, did your parents go to them? Did they take you to them, or it was all kind of at a distance? Yeah, it's funny. My parents, my mother stayed away. Uh, she was having problems with the state. She left the party, which the the party in East Germany was different to what you know from China, where it's a privilege. In China, it's a privilege to be a member of the party. In East Germany, we, you were a member of the party by default. So leaving the party was a act of dissent. And my mom did that because she was... She had her own reasons, which I didn't know. As a, as a child, I later found out it was uh, problems at work and all that. But we had sort of 
Stasi agents come to our house and sort of try to, you know, put pressure on her. So she stayed away from those protests, but I would stumble upon them on my way back from play in the forest and initially didn't know what they were. I was like sort of standing between those adults with their candles. And I was like thinking, oh my, oh my God, this is like uh, serious. What are they doing? And I was listening and I heard words like freedom and our rights and, you know, things that didn't mean much to me as a child, but I knew this was serious adult stuff. Again, I was 11, but like later when people asked me about that time, I understood that I was living through history, like a tectonic shift in German history. And that again fed into my desire later, which formed in my teenage years of wanting to become a journalist, that feeling of seeing history as it unfolds, because I had that as a child. I lived through that. And it's fascinating to be there, to see it happen. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. Um, I can only imagine. You said you already started thinking about journalism as a teenager. Can you tell us kind of what happens next? What happened next was a pretty chaotic time where everything fell apart. My dad lost his job. My mom was a nurse, so she kept on working, but she wasn't paid much. So it was a time of chaos and poverty. Chaos because sort of, you know, this the edifice of the state fell apart. We wouldn't go to school anymore because teachers would literally tell us like, there's no school tomorrow. We've got other stuff going on. Just don't come, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like inverted comma and inverted commas like the state's falling apart. Don't come to school. And we didn't. Uh, we just <laughs> hang out and we nicked motorcycles or like mopeds and just cruised around town and dropped them off where we picked them up and had a few years of, <laughs> of, of a pretty wild time. There was a lot of like street fighting going on where for some reason, which I still don't fully understand, young people like teenagers. Again, by that point, I was like sort of 12, 13, 14. I was, you know, a little puny kid, but like those who were older, they fell into two groups, which was neo-Nazis or punks. And they would constantly have fights. And depending on which neighborhood you were, you had to, you know, basically either run or beat up someone else. So, you know, I was kind of caught in the middle of this, which made for an interesting time. But the problem was that we were running out of money in my family. So my dad found work in the West and started commuting. And two years in, we followed him. He was a a carpenter. He was working at various companies. So like two years in, we moved to Mainz, which is in West Germany, which is a very affluent area, which removed me from my chaotic East German childhood and put me in the midst of kids who grew up in a totally different country, same language, same culture, but different country. There was a stigma attached to people from East Germany at the time during that transition period. We were sort of like the poor cousins and I was a bit scared. Yeah, first first day of school, I was pretty scared that they would bully me. And, you know, I had a different accent. It's a particular East German accent. But I got lucky. I found that they were all rather interested in my experience and asked me loads of questions how it was growing up in East Germany. And that's when I really started sort of going through my experience and this idea of journalism, I think, sort of has its roots there. Because with all those questions and with me having to answer them, you know, gave birth to this idea of like, this is a good job. And newspapers, that's what they do. And I'm doing this to my classmates. You know, like it wasn't that these ideas formed precisely in my head, but like if I tried to locate time when journalism as a way of life came into my thinking, that's probably where it started. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when I talk to photographers, some talk about photography and think about things in terms of that and journalism comes second. But for you, it was journalism first, it sounds like, and photography later. Is that right? How did you start to get into it? So photography started actually with the thing, the camera, which I found my dad's old camera, which he hadn't used. I, I didn't see him use it ever growing up. It was in the back of a cupboard. I actually got it here, which is this beautiful piece of equipment, this East German oh, wow. X, XR1A. And at the viewfinder, there's a top viewfinder. So you, so you look into the top and you see a mirror image. And it has this beautiful sound. You, you wind it up and... This is the, the Chateau release sound. So I found this thing and I totally fell in love with it. But that's just the, the machine, right? Taking pictures is a whole different ballgame. And that's a challenge for some reason that really hooked me. Realizing how hard it is to take a picture that like means something. And photographing people from the start was always like the, you know, the biggest challenge, which I for some reason embraced. I mean, I, I wasn't the most extroverted person. Still, I'm, I'm not. But like using this challenge to take a picture of someone that works means you have to enter a relationship with that person. And intuitively I understood that at a time by virtue of feeling how hard it is to make that picture happen, right? Because you can't just step in front of a stranger and they're like, you know, you just take that picture. You, you, you know, you have to somehow make that work on a personal level. I've been on that journey ever since and that challenge somehow like got me hooked and I, I started spending all my time trying to take pictures that work and my uncle gave me his old dark room so I then had the full experience of the magic of photography which is taking the picture developing it and marveling at the results which at the beginning were pretty bad <laughs> and it took me actually many years to get to a point where I was like okay I'm confident in being able to take a picture that is good and especially the, the the learning curve in analog photography is much, much longer because you take a picture and then, you know, develop it and print it. By that point, you've probably forgotten what your settings were and what the light situation was. So it's not as instantaneous as it is today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you start messing around with cameras when you're a teenager. And when you turn 18, do you go to college? But what happens next? So, yeah, what happens was that my dad died when I was seven, 16. Oh, wow. And my, my family sort of fell apart. I had like lots of troubles with my mom and I moved out when I was 17. I had a, an allowance, like a, a half semi-orphan allowance from the state, which enabled me to rent an apartment with two other friends who were also kicked out of home. And from then on, I was on my own, like no financial support from, from home. From then on, I was still in school. I was still, I hadn't finished high school yet. Oh, wow. But that sense of freedom was exhilarating. And I never looked back. I didn't feel like I was thrown out of home. I was feeling like I gained the world, you know, like I won the big ticket. I'm free now. So that has set me on this path of like self-reliance that I've been on ever since. And by that point, I really knew I wanted to be a photographer. But the problem I had was the city I lived in, Mainz, is beautiful but so boring that I couldn't make a picture that somehow excited me. I felt like I needed the world to be more exciting for my pictures to be more exciting. Now with experience, I know it can be different. And photography is definitely like my, my idea of photography has, you know, grown much deeper. 
at the time that was before the internet age my input was very limited to the books i found in the library and those books were like black and white images of you know like the old sort of rock and roll stars of photography like robert kappa uh Eugene Smith and Presson and all these people who, you know, they were taking pictures in faraway places. So I felt like I have to go to faraway places. However, my English was terrible. <laughs> uh, growing up in East Germany meant that we did have English, but our English teachers had never been to an English-speaking country, so their English was terrible. <laughs> so when I when I moved from the East to the West, to West Germany and in school, I could never catch up with the level of English of my classmates. I nearly failed my high school because of my bad English grade. So I decided as soon as I'm done here, I move to London just for a couple of months to learn English. And that's what I did. Like as soon as I was done with school and social service at the time, it was still obligatory to either go to the army or do social service. So I'd done that, finished that, bought a bus ticket, couldn't afford a plane ticket, got on a bus and drove to London. Got off at Victoria Station at seven o'clock in the morning and wasn't even able to buy a tube ticket because my English was that bad. <laughs> I had to ask another young German, a German girl on the bus who was with me on the bus, like, hey, can you help me get the ticket? The only address I had was a youth hostel in South London in Stockwell, a backpackers hostel, booked a room there, ran out of money, started working there, cleaning toilets in that youth hostel. Stayed there for a few months until my English was good enough to become a day laborer on construction sites. I was working as a street cleaner. I was working as a park warden. You know, stuff that like didn't require that much of like, you know, good English, but it paid enough for me to like live in small rooms around the city until my English was good enough to work in a bar, which was the prestigious job for like, it kind of moved me out of the shadows of this big city. And that really got me into contact with a wider society. And I branched out a year in my English was good enough to enroll in university. At the time, the UK was still part of the EU, which sounds, right. sounds of interesting to say that now, but it was. And that meant that I didn't have to pay overseas study student fees. And because I came from a household with low income, the European Union would actually pay my university fees. So I only had to pay my upkeep. That made it possible for me to study. I enrolled in a course called Digital Photography, which was rubbish. I quit that after a year. And I, <laughs> it just like it tried to teach me everything, but nothing. And it just didn't work. And I also figured if I want to be a photographer, I don't have to study how to photograph. You just, you, you need to do it. But by that point, my interest in Russia had sort of formed to the decision to make my path in journalism or to start my path in journalism in Russia. It, it was a combination that the Russia thing was like slowly growing on me, partly because of my history. Gerard, the city, the town where I grew up, was a garrison town. We had Russian soldiers stationed there. So I grew up surrounded by the glorious Red Army, which by the late 80s had... In my hometown, in front of my eyes, fallen apart visibly and become this ragtag army of pretty poor people. So I got interested uh, in the contrast between the myth of the glorious Red Army and the reality of what I saw growing up as a child in Gera. And um, I guess I wanted to get to the bottom of it and learn about this country that had sent them there. 
I wanted to see the country that let them down so much. At the same time, you know, like the chaotic 90s made for great news stories. And I saw amazing photo essays out of Russia in the 90s. So I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And this is, so I studied, studied Russian, uh, Russian literature and history and enrolled in university for that course and became obsessed with it. Put down my camera actually for the, for the four years for the du- duration of this course. Oh, wow. And just became like a diligent student and made that sort of the center of my life. Photography stayed in my life, though. The connection I, I had was a job I managed to pick up in an English news agency or like an English photographer's agency called uh, Network Photographers, which was like a, a collective of like, you know, great names in photography uh, at the time and still are. They're like, you know, Judah Passau, Sebastian Sagado was there, uh, Tim Hetherington, Jody Bieber. And I could see their work. I was a library assistant. I would file pictures. It was the analog time still, right? So pictures would come back from the newsrooms uh, in forms of prints and slides. And I would put them into back into the that rows and rows of filing cabinets. And I would put them back into their place. But that meant I could look at photography every working day. I was working there like three or four times a week. And I could talk to the photographers. And I could see what it meant to be a professional photographer. And I could see how they shoot, the different styles. And that sort of gave me a clear idea of like the level I need to reach, right? What I did learn though is that no one's taking you by the hand. No one's going to show you how to do it. You know, they were nice, but um, you couldn't be a fanboy. You know, you, you, they wouldn't just sort of like, <laughs> you know, take you along and go like, you know, show you Tom how, to, how, how I'm doing it. It's like, you know, you, you got to make your own mistakes and you, you got to learn with every single one of them. It's a, a learning curve and uh, there's no shortcut. That's sort of a path that's ahead of every f- young photographer. And you need to be in some ways delusional enough in thinking that you're good while you're not yet <laughs> to continue pursuing it until you are good enough, right? Yeah. So you just need to persevere, find somehow the strength within yourself yeah, fake it till you make it, basically. Yeah, you really do. Because, I mean, let's face it, every photographer, you know, young photographer is pretty rubbish, <laughs> at least at the beginning, right? When you pick up the camera, you have no idea. Of course, at the time, I thought I was amazing. And I look back at my old pictures and I clearly was anything but, right? <laughs> <laughs> but to believe in yourself is like, you know, that's why I kind of call it delusional is, is, is important because otherwise I would have stopped, right? I used to play the bass and... Luckily, I you know had the self-realization early enough that I was a bad bass player and this would not be a career. And I, <laughs> I, I put it down, thankfully. And yeah, you've you got to be self-reflective enough, but also like believe in what you can do, even while you cannot yet. Okay, so you finish up these four years studying everything about Russia. And do you move straight away to Russia or what, what happens then? No, what happened was that part of my course was um, studying in Russia every summer. Actually, I think only two times a summer, but I, I ended up going every year, every summer. And uh, one of the photographers at the agency, uh, Nikolai Ignatov, he was Russian. And he put me in touch with a guy who ra- ran a small agency in Moscow, Konstantin Leifer. So I flew to Russia and I got in touch with him. And through him, I was able to do some freelance work. Between my studies, I was studying in, in Kazan and in Petrozavodsk. And 
again, I, I continued on that challenge, which is even more of a challenge if you're in a foreign country in a language you, I didn't speak that well yet. My Russian wasn't fluent yet to put myself into situations where I gained enough trust with the people to take those pictures. And true to my sort of lifestyle in London, I was seeking out musicians and people in the art scene, which of course always make for good stories, but they're also, there's also good stories surrounding them at the time because Russia at the time was a country that had just come out of the chaotic decade of the 90s. But it had also thrown off the shackles of the Soviet Union. Like Russians were suddenly no longer Soviet people, they were Russians. And that was a, an important thing to them that they could be just proud to be Russians. At the time, it didn't have the sort of neo-imperialistic ring to it that it has like in the present day. It was a reawakening of Russia as a society and people were embracing it. And it was indeed inspiring. The country was flush in money. The oil price was at record high and clubs were opening up everywhere, like music venues. Uh, the fashion scene was burgeoning. And that was like, you know, a good scene for me to get into. And they were interested in showing what they were doing to a foreign visitor, especially one with a camera, because they had also stopped um, trying to emulate the West, which was something subconsciously they were doing like right after the fall of the Soviet Union, when everything that came from the West was special and it was something to be admired. Uh, 10 years later, by the time I got there in 2000, they were going like, no, we do our own stuff. You know, we have our own style and they were very confident about it. Uh, and it was quite fascinating to see. And I loved it. So I kept going back every summer during my studies. Uh, when I finished, I knew that I had to leave London. My time in London was great. I had a good circle of friends there, but it was time to leave to continue my path. So actually I cycled back. I left London on a bicycle. Wow. Like I felt like it's a, it's a fitting, a fitting journey after seven years of London to leave. I arrived in the bus. I left in the bus on a bicycle. <laughs> That's great. Cycled to Germany. I had to take care of my mom. Uh, she had health problems. We hadn't spoken much in, in those seven years. She'd never visited me, but she she needed care. So I stayed there for six months. Took an internship at a local newspaper as a reporter, which was very valuable experience. Made some money, but then got on a plane and moved to Moscow in 2006. So I knew what I wanted, which is, I guess, is rare for people you know, not, not everyone in their early 20s knows exactly what they want to do, but I didn't know how to get there, right? How do you become a paid photographer? There was no manual to it. So I took a job in an internet company at the time that was like a social media company that was massive, that had cornered the Russian market. It was called Mamba. I don't know if they still exist, but they were trying to compete with Facebook. They wanted to expand to Europe. And they needed foreigners to do their networking, translate their websites, write contracts and all that. And this boss offered me a job that he thought I just couldn't turn down. He offered me loads of money to be one of his, I don't know, his, his directors. And he said, like, in two years, you'll be rich. The thing was, what he didn't know was that at the same time, I had applied for a job at Reuters as a picture editor. 
and literally like it was the moment he invited me to london i was i was on a plane to london to meet him where the owner the owner was only 27 years old but he was this millionaire uh, living next to the he had like a you know a townhouse next to the the, the british museum because he made that much money with his social media empire in russia and i, I got there and he said like tom i'm going to make you rich i need you for my european social media empire and i was like i'm not going to take it I'm going to work as a journalist at Reuters. And he couldn't believe like anyone making that choice, <laughs> choosing journalism over money. But I did because I thought they're both once, once in a lifetime opportunities. Yeah. And I chose journalism. The thing is the job I got a picture editor is not photographer. So there's, it's like, it's like that one step removed from taking pictures. You take care of photographers pictures but at the time, it was as close enough as as, as close as, as as I could get to my dream of being a photographer, which I considered myself a photographer, but, you know, I wasn't paid as one. But, you know, working out of Moscow, they would oversee the entire former Soviet Union, which is, you know, like Central Asia, Belarus and Ukraine and the Caucasus. And I would handle all those pictures for photographers, help them with their assignments, translate their captions, talk with them about their stories and that gave me knowledge in former later work which you know was a solid footing and I was lucky that my time schedule was such that I was working for two days and I had two days off I used each of those days off to do my own stories which I could feed into the system right and that actually gave me the opportunity to like work on stories that weren't breaking news. I didn't have to do any press conferences, no state visits. I could just fo focus on stories, which eventually got noticed by the regional photographer. So even though I wasn't paid as a photographer, I was increasingly perceived as one, which eventually led to me being offered a job in Berlin as a photographer. Was it easy to get the job at Reuters in Moscow? Because, I mean, were there... Just not that many people kicking around, like looking for this type of work back then? I always say I went in through the back door because I had this very unique profile of having a background in photography. I spoke fluent Russian, I spoke fluent English, and there weren't many people around like that. So that helped me. It was would have certainly have been very much more difficult to like get into the company from Germany or from the UK where you have to do freelance photography for years until you might get that staff position, which again, like I had to put in my five years of working as an editor and a photographer in my spare time before I got that staff photographer job. Right. It's just like, as I said, I went in through the back door and proved my ability while actually being paid by the same company, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Cool. And gets noticed by the regional photographer. I mean, just give us some sense of like, you were doing non-breaking news stuff. So, I mean, was it still a lot of music, a lot of like art stuff? No, it was. Um, so the, the stories at a time where Russia was increasingly by that point, we were talking after 2006, right? So Putin had been in power for six years. He used, I would say, the first few years of his presidency to like stabilize the system in his way and once that was done once he had sort of like you know put the oligarchs into place he increasingly shifted towards a more authoritarian 
policy internally as well. And repressions of the opposition started to increase. That led to an increase in uh, like the liberal opposition who were then organizing rallies and other like actions to voice the discontent. And that kept us busy and making contacts with them. I was following for a long time an art group or like a political dissidents action group called Vaina. Some members of them later formed Pussy Riot. And that was sort of like a long-term project where I followed them and often stayed with them overnight and photographed their happenings, which were a mixture of art and vandalism. They would do stuff like walk into a police station with hidden cameras and walk into the uh, head police officer's office with a cake uh, and candles <laughs> and, and a picture of uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who had just been elected president, and um, force him to celebrate with them the election of, <laughs> of, of Dmitry Medvedev. And he was, of course, furious uh, over the breach of the authority. And, and he was like, how did she even get in here? And, you know, they would do these things where they would push the boundaries of authority and, and stuff that is deemed impossible and filming it all. And they gained internet fame by doing that. And to photograph that stuff, you had to be in the loop and part of that scene. And that's sort of like where I spent a lot of my time with. But I also traveled to the Caucasus, did feature stories there. There's a village in the Caucasus in Dagestan called Sofkra 1, which has for generations been uh, famous for tightrope walkers. So in the 1920s and 30s, tightrope walkers from all over the world all came from Dagestan and they all came from that particular village. Wow. And they had kept up the tradition of tightrope walking to the present day or like to that day. I don't know if they still do it. It's like really remote, you know, the roof of the Caucasus. So we traveled there and like we did a story about this village where literally everyone from children to the police officer to like the grandma, they all walked a tightrope. Like over something or was there a reason? I don't know. So they, they said it used to be the... Fastest way to travel from village to village because you could just like cross a gorge. But it was also a way of chivalry, of course. You know, you could show off. And as an elegant tightrope walker, you could definitely, you know, you could impress the girl from the next village. Uh, whereas other <laughs> villages would, would uh, specialize in hat making or basket making, you know, which wasn't exactly the same. It didn't have the same ring, right? Right. Wow. I was I was free to do these sort of like off the beaten track stories that often took a lot of time. You had to think out of the box and like I had that hunger for these kind of stories and I was seeking them out. And that was something that the photographers who were like on the daily grind, on the beat, they didn't have a nerve for that kind of stuff. You know, when they were done with their job, which is often busy and they had to be creative in their own ways, of course, but when they were done, they just wanted to go back to their families, right? Whereas my family was my camera at the time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, those are some great stories. And I mean, I can see why it stood out to the regional photographer. I mean, I imagine Reuters is a wire service, like it's all about getting stuff out fast. So I imagine they were early adopters of digital photography or weren't they? Well, they're all shot digitally, um, but I didn't have to, like, so those are stories, if they come out, like, at the end of the day, that's fine. I didn't have to file on the spot, and often I couldn't. Like, one picture 
which I actually use on my wider image page as, as sort of my header image, is a typical example of pictures I took at that time, which is a cat flying over a counter at uh, a McDonald's, <laughs> uh, which was another action of the, of the art group Weiner, who were trying to highlight the mundane nature of people working in low-paid jobs, right? And on Workers' Day, it was all about the symbolism. So on Workers' Day, they walked into a McDonald's, they had collected 10 street cats the day before, <laughs> and put them in, in duffel bags, and they lined up each at one of the counters and then made sure that they were all at the front of the counter first. And then once they were at the front, they would open the back and throw the cat over the counter. <laughs> what exactly the symbolism of the cat was, I never understood. It was quite cryptic to me. <laughs> what I didn't know, though, is that any protest in Russia is watched by undercover cops, right, to keep eyes on people. And of course, it was lunchtime and undercover cops, they go for lunch as well. And they all went to McDonald's <laughs> and the place was full with undercover cops, unbeknownst to all of us. So as soon as these cats were flying over the counter, a massive scuffle broke out in the McDonald's. Because they're like, you know, these, <laughs> they're piling on top of each other and they were all trying to arrest the, the guys with the cats and they... So I barely got away. And of course, like I couldn't like pull out my laptop and file the pictures. I had to sort of like get away from the center, make it back to my apartment. And hours later, I was able to file those pictures. So time wasn't essential, like sort of for those kind of stories. Then it was really the content that mattered. Sure. So after five years there, they hire you to, but to work in, in Berlin, not to work in Russia. And how did you feel about that were you ready to go back or what, what was the thinking i hadn't lived in germany for, 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 for 11 years i'd been back on visits but i hadn't been back and i hadn't spoken german much in those 11 years and I actually came back with, with speaking you know a bit of an accent in german it took me a few weeks for my mouth to readapt russian i spoke russian most of the time of course in in, in russia and I, i'd completely stopped speaking german from the day i moved to london and uh, Russian language is a very soft language, and I, I struggled with the German consonants, and that <laughs> made it a, a bit difficult at the beginning. Photography-wise, it was a challenge. It's, it's a tough competition. German photographers, they are at the top of their game in political photography, and that's what they mostly do in Berlin. You know, it's the capital of the biggest country in Europe. Merkel, of course, at the time was chancellor. We quickly moved into the Euro crisis, you know, like when, when Greece was about to like, you know, threaten possibly defaulting. So like Merkel had to be on our wire every single day. And, and political photography is its own kind of beast where it's a split second with the perfect angle, with the unique kind of view of a subject that is photographed by 50 other photographers that will make the picture. And that's a type of competition that I wasn't used to. And I really had to sort of, you know, up my game very quickly to be able to compete with those great photographers in that particular area of photography, right? That was new to me. And what was also interesting for me was to rediscover my own country after having been away for so long. We covered all of East Germany out of Berlin. So I saw more of Germany than I had done growing up in Germany. And that part of Germany is beautiful, but also underdeveloped with loads of social problems. And it, it was fascinating to see my own country as an adult after having been away for so long. 
and being able to do this with a camera and framing it and sending it out to the world. But uh, after five years, you, you've had enough. And what, what happens then? Well, during my time in, in, in Berlin, I did cover some international stories. Went to Afgan Afghanistan a couple of times and covered the Maidan revolution in Ukraine and then the Crimea takeover, the Russian takeover of Crimea. And I made it known to my editors that um, I can do more than that. Problem was that Berlin kept us so busy that they couldn't send me on long assignments abroad because I needed to be there. So when a job came up in the Reuters internal system in Tokyo, I applied and I, I got it. And I think what made them, I don't speak a word of Japanese, I had never been to Japan, but I think what, what convinced my editors that I would be a good candidate for this job is that I could squeeze a story out of an area where no one else had done stories. Storytelling wasn't a thing that many German agency photographers did, but I kept doing it. And that sort of stood out, I think. And I think they thought this would be like the perfect match for Japan, where there was a similar situation going on, where there's a lot of repetitive assignments. But what they needed was someone who goes in to tell stories. And they gave me the job and I moved to Tokyo in 2014, which was set me up on a completely different trajectory. And I've been in Asia ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, I guess you weren't in Japan all that long because we overlapped in China. So you were only there a couple of years. I was there a couple of years. So the thing about, how do I phrase this? Well, look, I had moved to a foreign country and immersed myself in a foreign society twice successfully. So, you know, I moved as a young German to England, loved it and became part of the society. I moved to Russia, loved it, and really was part of that beast as well. And I thought I could do it a third time, no problem. What I had to find out, though, is that I'm not a chameleon. It's like East Asia, people have a different mindset. Society is based on different values, and they didn't immediately gel with me. It was amazing for work. I did do a lot of good stories, and... I liked a lot of things about Japan, but I very quickly f knew that I would not be able to replicate the same level of involvement I had with Russia or London simply because I didn't fit in. My rebellious sort of like individualistic personality just doesn't chime with the Japanese way. So... What happened was that at the time, the regional chief photographer, he offered me a swap with a photographer who was based in Beijing, uh, who needed to go back to Japan for work reasons if I wanted to swap positions with him. And I said, like, yeah, you know, like, that's amazing. Because I felt China, you know, another sort of, I wanted to see, you know, another incarnation of the communist idea, you know, as a state after East Germany, where I had grown up, after Russia that still had trappings of the Soviet Union in some form. And then I was going like, hey, that's interesting. Let's see how that compares to China. And I was like, sure, I'll go. And that's when I moved to Beijing in 2016. Yeah, you joined the Reuters Beijing Bureau where I was working since, gosh, I can't remember, 2014. And then, yeah, I left in 2017. So we must have overlapped, yeah, about a year yeah, so let's talk a bit about China, because I'm curious how, how you see it now that you've been there for, 
you said you got there in 2016, six years now. Yeah. So, I mean, has it matched up to your expectations and how has it changed? And yeah, how do you look at it now? Yeah, so it has changed. I didn't really expect anything because I had, again, no exposure to China prior to moving there. I was thrilled when I got there. I met a very vibrant community of, of young journalists, you included, you know, xenophiles who spoke the language, who are invested in the country and kind of like reminded me of the journalist community I was involved with in Russia, who were equally immersed in the culture of this of the country so i encountered that and i was like wow this is amazing there's like a lot of stuff everyone is doing here and i dove right in however i had to find out that china has been and still is the hardest country i've ever worked in as a journalist and i've worked in many even outside of the countries where i was based this is a country where the system of control on foreign journalists is so holistic that it's, it gives you very little wiggle room as a visual journalist where you have to go to places, you have to be there physically to do your work. It gives you very little room to make that happen or at least make it happen to a degree where you're happy with the outcome. Yeah. So we've kept pushing. By we, I mean my colleagues and me, we would always travel in teams and there are Chinese-speaking colleagues, both Chinese and foreigners. And we pushed hard to get our stories off the ground. And we often succeeded in ways that were good, but it's just getting more and more difficult, if not impossible, especially now with COVID restrictions, to do anything that makes you feel like what I'm shooting here represents what I'm seeing or feeling or, or what I think the story is. It's a drain on your resources. It's very hard. It's a very passive-aggressive approach that leaves you like fighting a shadow army in some ways, you know, because unless you've, you've experienced it, people don't really understand how difficult it is. In that, just that, I mean, the way people used to do it is you, you show up in a place, try to get stuff real quick before, like, you know, the authorities become aware, and hopefully in that narrow window you execute something good, but I imagine they're getting better and better at not even giving you that limited window. Yes, yes. And and they are working with a, in some ways, compliant society, right? Who have been told so many times, don't trust the foreigners. I'll give you a good example. I mean, now COVID, of course, has changed everything, but like that really sort of highlights the impossibility of me moving in any way through the Chinese countryside. I was trying to do a story for the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And my idea was to walk a section of the Long March, which happened after the founding of the... Oh, no, I, sorry, sorry. It was the founding of the Communist Party of China, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so the Long March happened uh, about 20 years later or so. But it kind of ties in with the party becoming a party that eventually won the civil war. So I was, I wanted to walk a section of the long march and I picked a very beautiful part uh, of China where, you know, rice farmers were still living in the same villages that Mao's army had come through in the 1930s. And my idea was to walk for five days and basically just ask villagers how their life has changed and what they remember from their parents or grandparents 
you know, how they experienced that particular period of time when the Red Army was passing through. And I found villagers that were very happy with the situation. So it would have turned out to be a very positive story. You know, it was visually beautiful. The farmers were happy. There was no crime as there used to be in the 1930s. So, you know, there was nothing bad to be said about it. What happened, however, is that the police found us after one day in the village. They busted into the house where we were sleeping. We're staying with farmers. They gave huge problems to the farmer who was hosting us. And in the morning when we continued our walk, they followed us in the car behind us and another car was driving ahead to the next village and told the villagers that there's two foreigners coming who have COVID. Um, so, you know, and it, took, it took us a while to figure this out, what they were doing, because the first few villages were going like, why is everyone running away? And and literally, huh. like, we would enter the village and, like, mothers were dragging their kids off the road and, like, people were running into their houses and waving everyone away. And in the back, you would see sort of huddles of men with, like, pitchforks and stuff. And I was like, what is going on? And it's like first village, second village. And like it was, you know, like a movie where you walk down the village road and sort of heads that pop out of the of the windows, get a you know, a look at the foreigners, and then they, you know, close the shutters as you get come closer. Until we heard them, you know, say like, hey, you know, careful, they have the virus, and then they would, you know, hold their mouths if they had to run past us and stuff. So we were stranded. We were stranded in the middle of nowhere with nowhere to go. No shops would sell us water. And there's obviously no DDs out there. No like taxis you could call. No public transport. And who were you with? Uh, with Shi Hao. We went to foreigners. It was one Chinese and it was me, one foreigner. Shi Hao is our camera, our VJ in, in, in Shanghai. Oh, video. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And after. Pff, I don't know, like 12 hours of, I mean, we, we could shake them off, you know, we, we could like, we, we took sort of a detour through a forest and, you know, popped up in a different village, but same situation there. They were too lazy to like walk with us through the bush, but any village we came to, the situation was the same. So 12 hours in completely uh, exhausted and dehydrated. We just had to give up and yeah. To add insult to injury, we had to like hitch a ride with the same guys who, <laughs> the same state security, plain clothes people, <laughs> take a ride with them back to the biggest, next nearest biggest town where we could check into a hotel and then fly out. And that story never, you know, that's just like one example of so many where you just trying to do your work and show what's going on, tell a story, but they just make sure that um, you don't, you know? Yeah, wow. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's crazy. So before I move on to ask about the stories, I mean, I do want to talk to you about COVID and Wuhan, and I want to talk to you about Ukraine. So yeah, let's talk about COVID, because you went to Wuhan you took some amazing photos. I mean, you were the one who did the ones of people walking out on the bridge, right, to get escape town. Right. And uh, so here's the thing: I didn't actually go to Wuhan. What happened was that I was covering the Australia bushfires, the end of them, the aftermath of the bushfires. When oh wow, <laughs> when the Wuhan story was picking up, and shortly after I arrived, a couple of days before I came back from Australia, Wuhan was locked down. 
got locked down. So what my colleague Martin Pollard and I did was that we basically traced the border of the province surrounding Wuhan to see what the lockdown and the sort of growing epidemic at the time it still was had on the population surrounding the province. And that was super hard work because like people were scared, of course, everyone was, no one knew what exactly this virus was, but the authorities still also didn't know like how to deal with journalists other than just like locking them down. So we were hunted, we were locked down and out into our hotels, we were stopped for hours, like every step we took was a struggle. Did you manage to get into, uh, what is the province? I used to have these all memorized. It's Hubei, Hubei, right? Yeah, okay. So you managed to get... No, we didn't. You couldn't cross the provincial border into Hubei, because if you did, you wouldn't be able to get out again, right? By that point, they had locked down the entire province. So we always made sure we stayed on the outside of the provincial border, and we came from different provinces surrounding Hubei. And... So that bridge you mentioned was one of the bridges that went over the river and the river was the provincial border. And people were trying to basically escape the COVID lockdown for various reasons, for personal reasons, that one woman was trying to get her her daughter to cancer treatment and she was denied crossing the border for several days and she camped out with her daughter who was huddled in a blanket for days and she kept coming back. And they wouldn't budge, even though she had papers that her daughter needed to have chemotherapy in a nearby hospital across that provincial border. Um, Eventually, they let them through. We assumed that our cameras helped because it was bad optics for them having the struggling patients stranded there. And yeah, so like cities surrounding that border at the time, obviously it wasn't a pandemic yet, you know, cases had popped up mid-city already, but it, it was very much perceived as a China problem at the time. But people were scared. Of course, memories of SARS came back, but no one knew, if, is it airborne and, and, and how far can it travel? So it was extraordinarily hard to work and to get anyone to talk to us or show us their lives because we were perceived as a threat. Not just because we're journalists, but because we're outsiders. Were you scared? Do you know, when you're in the middle of it, you kind of don't think about it. You focus on your work and you take precautions, of course. But like fear wasn't wasn't on my mind too much, really. I felt like, you know, I'm outside and I should be okay. Somehow I was optimistic that this would be all right. How does this all end? Because I, I seem to remember you had to spend quite some time in quarantine. There was there's some like eerie drawing or something. I think you posted <laughs> yeah, about yeah, like yeah. being like locked up in this cell. Basically, is that how this all ended? They like really clamped down on you. Yes. What happened? We were we were traveling for I think about two or three weeks, finding stories from the road, and then upon our return to Beijing. They insisted that we home quarantine. What happened, meanwhile, during our absence in Beijing is that they didn't lock down compounds, but they instituted a sort of like a system of control where only inhabitants of compounds could enter 
into their compound, right? So you had to have a jurujong, which is a, you know, like an entry pass, right? Which I, of course, didn't have because I hadn't been there. <laughs> and I didn't know that suddenly, like, there were guards posted at my at compound gates. And I was like, and I was there exhausted with my bags and stuff. And these guys were trying to prevent me from entering. I was like, I live here. And I just sort of barged through and I ran into my apartment and they were chasing after me. And I was like, leave me alone. I'm just going home. You know, like, I've been on the road for two weeks. Huh. So I just slammed the door shut behind me and then they informed me that I couldn't leave for two weeks and I had no food, right? Oh, Jesus. My wife was still traveling in Japan and I was alone with an empty fridge. And so we had to set up some food delivery system with the help from the office. And the picture you saw was kind of a representation of what I felt, you know, like quarantines, which have now become routine for everyone who lives in China, because we have to do them every time we come back into the country. At that point, it was still something that was so foreign in concept to be locked into your apartment for two weeks that it felt surreal. And it felt like some strange fictional form of prison, which, you know, comparing to the quarantines we are doing now, which happen in hotel rooms, it's a luxury. To quarantine in your own apartment you know you have all your books you <laughs> yeah. have netflix and it was actually okay of course how, how many times have you exited the country since COVID hit i did the olympics in tokyo that was the first time and then i went to ukraine the second time so it's been twi twice yes Okay, and you have to do like a three-week quarantine on the way back in right three weeks or is it more i did a three-week quarantine after Tokyo and a two-week quarantine after Ukraine. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. And let's see. Yeah, let's talk about Ukraine. I'm very curious. Like, I feel like Ukraine hit and an interesting thing happened where a lot of people I know were like, send me in. Like, I want to go to Ukraine. Like, like knee-jerk reaction. Like, I don't want to miss this. Hmm. I'm like, uh, I was never going to put my hand up. I just felt like I have no connection to the story. But I was surprised by people even with like very tenuous connections really wanted to go. How did you feel about it? Was it, I mean, obviously your experience lends itself to that. Yeah. But uh, were you raring to go to get in there or, or how did you feel when it broke out? No, I made it very clear to my editors that I would go to Ukraine because of my connections with the region and the fact that I speak the language and my prior knowledge in covering the Maidan revolution in 2014 and the takeover of Crimea, which were precursors to the invasion that happened in 2022, in January this year. So I made that very clear that I would definitely want to go and need to go. And I hit the ground running. For me, it was like, you know, closing a circle to be able to see how a country was just getting up on their feet and fighting for their future. It's inspiring. I mean, it's cruel what's happening there. It's cruel to see how the Ukrainian society, the Ukrainian people are being bombarded and killed by their bigger neighbor that claims to run a special operation to denazify the country. So it's absurd to see the contrast between the Russian justification of that war 
and compare that to what you see on the ground of apartment blocks being shelled, like one after the other. There's whole neighborhoods in Kharkiv, where I was based most of the time, where every second house has a massive hole with the black smoldering surrounding of a shell that, that hits a few days earlier. And all surrounding windows are just blown out. The curtains wave in the wind, sort of fly in the wind. And all the residents have either fled or they live in their basements. And you wonder, is that, is that what a special operation looks like? It's, 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 it's horrific to see. And it's important just to show like what the reality is on the ground. And it's just like the, the facts speak for themselves. You don't need to take sides. You know, you you show the reality of what that war means for, for people in Ukraine, and then you kind of know where you stand, right? How long were you there for? Uh, six weeks. Yeah. It's like, I'm, of course, my, my connections with Russia run deeper than with Ukraine. I spent my entire 20s in Russia, and and Ukraine is a country where I covered stories over extended periods of time, but... Yeah. Russians are people I thought I understood, right? And as I said, the time I was in Russia was a time of optimism and it was inspiring. But I also know that even during that time, sort of the lingering neo-imperial tendencies that existed, not in everyone's mind, but like you, you could pick up on those frequencies in society pretty much everywhere you looked. And what was already clear at that point is that Russia had never critically engaged with its own history and the dark part of its history, which, you know, it must be said every country has those periods in history which are dark and evil. But never facing up to them means that you perpetuate the forces that have driven those crimes in the past and it will happen again and it will happen again and people don't come to terms they don't reflect on the actions of their state. What is very interesting about Russia is that, or Russian people, is they don't often understand that Western societies or like people who are born in Western societies make a clear distinction between their own moral compass and the actions of their government. So, you know, we can be proud of our country, but fiercely criticize the foreign policy of our country. And that's something that, Russians often don't get. They conflate your nationality with the foreign policy of your government. I had that often in Crimea when I was arguing with like journalists of uh, Russian state media how undemocratic the supposedly democratic vote in Crimea was. Just you know to fill in the listeners, like you know Russia staged a a so-called election where the residents of Crimea basically voted to join Russia, right? And it clearly wasn't a democratic thing because it was it happened under coercion and the whole setup of the vote was anything but democratic. So I would argue about that with the Russian correspondents and they would always bring up Kosovo and Iraq and said like, how was that democratic? How was that sanctioned by the international community? And I was like, that's not my policy, right? Only because I happen to be born in Germany doesn't mean that I supported every aspect of Germany's foreign policy. I may criticize it as a citizen and I'll definitely report on it as a journalist. Going back to Ukraine, it's like, you know that Russians still struggle with those Russians who don't support the war. 
there's still struggle with where do you stand as a Russian person who loves his or her country and you don't support the war, but how do you square that circle? And since that's never been like a public discourse in the country, in a discourse where it's okay to criticize the history or parts of the history in your country while still loving your country, that's never been exercised. I know it's hard for many people to come to terms with this. Yeah. And I mean, six weeks, you said you were mostly in Kharkiv. Yeah. I entered the country on the second day of the war. And the second day? The second day, yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess there was a bit of warning, like you were getting ready before it broke out even, I imagine, right? Yeah, what happened was that I I covered the Olympics and I took a plane from the bubble in Beijing, the COVID bubble, out of the bubble, and I was going to go on holiday. And I told my editors, okay, either I go on holiday, and if the war breaks out, I, I cover the war. And then the war did break out. And one day in, like, I landed in Frankfurt on... I don't know, the 23rd and the 24th was when Russia invaded. And on the 25th, I was crossing the border into, from Poland into, into Ukraine. I helped set up our operation in Lviv. At the time, we still thought that Russia would just basically roll over Ukraine. Little did we know that the Ukrainians were so effective in repelling the, the invasion. So we thought we had to basically shift our entire operation, which at the time and still is based mainly out of the Kiev office. We thought we would have to shift it all to Lviv. So we hired drivers, we stockpiled food and petrol and got warehouses and stuff, found fixers. So that took like a week. And then I moved on to Kiev, did some reporting there. But then we didn't have anyone in Kharkiv, except for a Russian speaking stringer, TV stringer. And I was the only Russian-speaking foreign member of the Reuters team, the local TV and photographers that stayed in Kiev because that's where they were most effective. So I said, like, okay, I raised my arm, said, like, okay, I'll, I'll go to Kharkiv and work with that stringer and run our operation, our coverage from there. And it was at the time, like, the most heavily shelled city because the Russians were, after they failed taking Kiev, they were making a bit of an attempt on Kharkiv, which ultimately also failed. It's kind of hard to even know what, what to ask about it. But I mean, I'm guessing it's just every day, complete, you know, pictures of destruction. Like, well, um, yeah, it, it's, you know, one thing I, I need to say is that I was there for six weeks, my colleagues, my Ukrainian colleagues, not just in Reuters, across the agencies, they've been there from the start and they will be there until the end, whatever the end looks like. And they have this every single day. What happens, you get up in the morning, you scan social media and all kinds of sources you have to check on what got hit. You go there, you see a lot of gruesome pictures, you speak to people, they're angry, they're defiant. You try to tell their story, but you also try to tell the bigger story. You try to get ahead of the story by going to regions where developments might happen. All of this, of course, while trying to stay safe, which is very difficult in an artillery war because front lines are never clear. And frankly, there aren't really front lines in an artillery war because long range, medium range missiles, they can hit anywhere. But you still try to make an assessment to keep you as safe as possible. And within those confines, you move to wherever you think you can tell the story best. And at the time, what helped me mentally was the fact that the curfew meant 
that I actually got a lot of sleep. You know, I don't know if it's still the same, but at hmm. the time, yes, it, it's quite important. You know, after like a long day of pretty stressful work, I had to be back at the hotel at, I think, seven o'clock was uh, seven o'clock at the time. And the curfew lifts at seven, seven o'clock in the morning. So you pretty much grounded as of seven o'clock. And, you know, I got my eight hours sleep every night, which helps you to process what happened during the day. Being physically tired from a lack of sleep is the worst that can happen. And it normally would in any sort of other conflict situations sort of conflict coverage. That's normally what happens because like you get up at the crack of dawn and you drive for hours and you hardly sleep and stuff. And that really, really drains you. This was easier on the body, but it's pretty, still pretty tough on the mind. Yeah. I mean, this is the only time you've covered a, a war, right? An out-and-out war? And yeah, sort of like a, an active shooting war, yes, yes. I, I had been to, to Afghanistan embedded with the army, but that wasn't an active shooting war at the time when I was there in the way that Ukraine was. So, so yes, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit surprised with your skills speaking Russian and all that, that you're not still there, not going back, not, I mean, or does Reuters have a pretty strict, like, you do your rotation and that's it because of safety reasons? Well, there's, there's several factors. One is that, yes, my language skills help, but, you know, we have amazing photographers who've been going on since. So we have a rotation and they work with translators and they do just as good a work as I do. The other problem, of course, is that, Chinese travel restrictions mean that me leaving the country has the results that on the way back, I have to quarantine again. And also there are no, f there's like one flight a month from Germany and I have to fly from Germany back to Beijing. I think that might have changed, but like it used to be at the time. And those flights are super expensive. Quarantine is expensive. So it's just like an added cost that make it harder for me to just go on a regular basis, which I would be doing if I was based in another country that didn't have a zero COVID policy in place. Right, right. And I mean, China is maybe the one place where like it, despite all the difficulties which you've talked about, like it, it's so important, they can't not have <laughs> photographers in China, they couldn't just say, oh, exactly. Tom's going to do this now, like, no, somebody needs to be there. Yeah. So that makes sense. I mean, has it, uh, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but I mean, has it affected you mentally a lot? Does it bother you now that you're back? What, what has affected me a lot is dropping into a void. It's exhilarating to cover a story that's meaningful and where you know your work matters to a lot of people out there. And you get a lot of feedback for your, for your work. And coming back to China where I'm literally grounded that was tough. That was tough to stomach. So I struggled with that more so than the actual experience of covering Ukraine because I felt I was doing my job in Ukraine, whereas I can't really be doing my job here right now. So that contrast was, was tough on the mind, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I mean, I find it always a pretty difficult adjustment. I've never been to a war zone, but like, you know, going out and like I just covered this you know journalist who was murdered out in the Amazon and like retracing his final steps talking like all that it was really heavy stuff and but when you're there doing it it's just so go 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 that it's yeah more upsetting when you get back and it's just like yeah you go into nothing 
Yeah, I know. It's it's actually the decompression phase is is hard, right? Of course, it depends how you decompress and where. But in 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 my case, it was too much of a contrast to be able to say it was easy. Yeah, and I mean that's crazy that you. I mean, obviously, then have to go quarantine for two weeks in a hotel and just yeah, that's really a void. Yeah, Um, but yeah, shit. Okay. I mean, that's fascinating stuff. I mean, yeah, I haven't really talked to anybody yet who went there. What is interesting, what fascinated me about being there is to see how Ukraine as a society has really reached a level of determination. It's always been, you know, ever since it, it, it voted to become independent in 91, it's always been a society that was looking forward it had finally become the nation state that it always wanted to be. And it's a forward-looking project where it's an aspirational project where people are trying to build institutions that aspire to the safeguarding of accountability and, of course, the rule of law. In basically a society that works. They were struggling with, like, they're still struggling with corruption and everything. So it's been a very, very tough path. But this war has really galvanized people into winning the war, of course, but also making society work. And it's amazing to see how everyone is putting in their lot. You know, you see bankers who work in soup kitchens. You see secretaries who become frontline nurses. Everyone is trying to chip in or do whatever they can towards the war effort, be it as an active fighter or in any many of the other areas that needs to work. And that stands in stark contrast to what Russia is doing because Russia's project is backwards looking. It's about resurrecting an empire that never really existed. The Kremlin forces a vision of Russia's future into the country that is backwards looking. And um, without public discourse, it's toxic for people because they don't know what they're fighting for. But Ukrainians do. Their future's at stake. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. The other thing I was going to ask was, I was kind of surprised by, obviously, Danish Sadiq was killed in Afghanistan, and it it was a big deal. Yeah, Danish Sadiqi, yeah. And I I remember in Ukraine also, a guy who had sometimes freelanced, maybe he wasn't on assignment with Reuters, was killed there. Max Levine, yeah. I just felt like the reaction to the two were... Like, you know, everybody's still talking about Danish and nobody's talking about this other guy, or at least maybe I missed it. But I was just having trouble (laughs) making sense of all of that. Like, it it seemed very tragic, too. And like, uh, you know, it was a blip compared to Danish. Yeah. So what I can say from the inside of the photo world, the loss of both colleagues was a massive shock to us. What do you see in difference in the reaction to the death of the two is that Danish was a friend to many in Reuters because he worked with many of us on different assignments. So there was that personal connection, whereas Max Levine was a dear colleague to everyone in, in Ukraine and, and his death, it, it shattered the photo community in Ukraine and every photographer who worked in Ukraine. So what you see as a difference is just a difference of perception from where you look at the death of those people, right? 
Yes, within the company, Max wasn't as well known because he was a regular stringer, but he wasn't he wasn't that much like known to Reuters staff outside of Ukraine. And yeah, so it probably just didn't reach me in Brazil in the same way. Yeah, that makes sense yeah. um, to me. But yeah, terrible. And I mean, did, did anything, does anybody have any idea what happened in the end? Yeah, I think it emerged over the course of a few weeks that he was ambushed, taken prisoner, tortured and shot. And he was traveling near the Russian front lines, north of Kiev, but in a region where he thought he was safe. He was very experienced. But an ambush being an ambush means that those Russians were hiding in a place where no one expected them. So it was a mixture of him doing his job in a war zone and getting unlucky. Yeah, shit. Like, I just can't imagine it was sanctioned by the, the Russian military or they're just that, I don't know. Is it that bad? Well, I mean, if, if you look at the way Russia wages war, not just in Ukraine, but in Chechnya as well, it's all about intimidating and causing fear in the population of the country or region they try to subdue, which is what is the indiscriminate shelling does. And that's exactly what they're doing. And the behavior of Russian soldiers is kind of in line with that brain of terror they bring upon the countries they try to take. So is it surprising, looking back at Russia's war history? Uh, no. But of course it's shocking. And it's it's infuriating to watch. Yeah, yeah. Also, like I just talked to a guy, the episode hasn't come out yet, but he did a story about Russian mercenaries in Africa who get away with yep. incredibly crazy shit. And because it's in Africa, it gets much, much less covered. But, you know, yeah. going to, I forget where, countries people rarely go, like, um, to report on that. But... Yeah, it is perhaps uh, pervasive more than I think. It is pervasive. And and of course, there's no internal Russian reporting on it. Um, there used to be, you know, if you go back to the Chechen war, there were Russian invest investigative journalists who did uncover war crimes committed by the Russian army and Russian soldiers in Chechnya. But they paid the price, you know, most famously Anna Politkovskaya, who was, uh, who was murdered for her reporting and before she was she was killed she was threatened several times and she continued bravely uh, with her work and she's just one example of many russian journalists who are trying to report on russian military actions from the inside of the country and they pay a very very steep price for it yeah yeah um let's see so, yeah, I guess I'll move on to, to talk about the couple of story questions then, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. If you can tell us about a story you're proud of and just kind of walk us through uh, the whole story behind the story. Yeah, one story that proud of, like one story that's definitely like stood out as a once in a lifetime story was the entire stretch of Hong Kong protests, which in, includes like several stories and nights and nights and nights of protest coverage with lots of tear gas. The reason why the story is so fascinating is because A, 
again, it was history in the making. It was a, like, it was a buildup of public frustration that erupted at a speed with a dynamic that I think even surprised locals and quickly assumed a ferocity that was just mind-blowing. And the reason why it's so, it was so amazing to be there as a journalist witnessing it was that it went through so many stages of peaceful mass rallies uh, that at some points had 2 million people in the street. And then it turned violent at some point when people resorted to measures when they felt like they weren't being hurt and Police was cracking down very hard, which, of course, you know, made the violence spiral up again. You had the occupation of an airport where protesters managed to shut down one of Asia's most busy airports for several days. The occupation of the Poly U University that turned into a week's, I think, a couple of weeks long siege. And I was inside with the students sleeping in one of the halls. And on the background of all of this, Whenever there was a lull in the protests, I was able to do a few feature stories that kind of explained why this is happening. And there was elections in the midst of that as well, the district council elections and young district council members, they embraced the political system that existed and was very much in disfavor to participation. They still embraced that system trying to affect change for a more democratic Hong Kong. So it was fascinating to see all the facets of that protracted protest movement, which ultimately failed when China cracked down and turned Hong Kong into a city that has none of the trappings that it used to have. You know, Hong Kong is not the same that it used to be before 2019. Yeah, it used to be that, yeah, I would get off the train or the plane in Hong Kong from, you know, Beijing or Shanghai, and it would feel like left China completely behind, you know, just felt completely different and... And I guess I didn't really, like, I I read the coverage, you know, I saw some of the photos and stuff. Like, I'll I'll try to link to some of your work, but like for for long running things like that, is there one specific piece of work you did in in that time that you would direct people to if they want to see... You know, did you do a wider image? Did you do a... Yeah, I, did a, I don't know. It was a breaking news situation, so... Well, that, that's the thing why, why I was highlighting the story, because it was both breaking news on a constant, on a weekly basis. But there were also times when I had time to do in-depth stories and, and two wider image stories came out of that. And one a story I did pretty much at the beginning, the early stages of the protest, when I was visiting young people in their homes and ask them about the, the situation that young people face in, in Hong Kong is the property prices are so high that even if you, if you have a well-paid job, you cannot afford your own apartment. So while the, the protests, of course, were very much of political nature, social discontent fed into it as well because people, young people in Hong Kong felt like their future, the city doesn't give them room for the future they deserve the next generation of Hong Kong will not have a stake in running the city, both on a political front, but also on a, on a financial front. So I was visiting young people in their 20s who all had full-time jobs who were still living in the same bedrooms where they grew up. So I did this photo series of them posing in their childhood bedrooms that is still the bedroom at the age of mid-20s to 30s and asked them about their take on the city the state of the city, property prices, and how it ties in with the protest. Because there is, of course, a a connection 
between all of those factors. It was a very all-encompassing protest of discontent that happened in 2019. And the other story was, as I, as I mentioned, district councillors, democratic district councillors who had won in traditionally pro-Beijing districts and they were trying to use their position as district councillors to help their city along on a more pro-democratic trajectory, which, of course, ultimately failed with everything that happened afterwards and the national security law that basically makes any kind of political participation towards a more democratic running of the city impossible. But they were hopeful. And it was fascinating to see in a part of Hong Kong called North Point, which is traditionally been blue, blue meaning pro-Beijing, and they being yellow, which is pro-democratic, took that district in a landslide. And they were all in their mid-20s, super smart and super optimistic that the future of the city belongs to them, which sadly, Beijing was of different opinion on that front. And I mean, yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about that those stories, because neither of those stories... I mean, you said they're wider images, which means like, you know, that's the premier, I guess, like photo uh, essays that Reuters does. Yeah, it's, it's a storytelling platform that Reuters has where photographers dive into subjects much deeper and there's like a long running text story with it where it's not about the single image, but like a photo essay. But what's interesting to me about that is like neither of those stories sound like, you know, the traditional thing, uh, like a lot of photographers probably rush in for, like they don't, like it sounds like people, people in rooms, you know, basically. Right, right. Um, but you're, uh, it's interesting that it does seem you do come at it as a story. And it sounds like the visuals followed from there, like you had the idea for the story. and Yeah. Then, figured out how to make it visually compelling enough, even though it is probably people in rooms, I assume. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot. Look, the thing is like the, the, the portrait series, yes, is people in rooms, but they, you know, a childhood bedroom tells a lot about the person. So, you know, visual language is very rich and it can be impressive. You can read a picture, even if it's not full of smoke explosions and, and flying stones. There's a lot you can read in it that, that forms a story and a narrative. And I am fascinated by that form of photography as much as I am about the more the tectonic sort of like kinetic part of the job, which I, I got to do like, you know, every night anyways. I was, I was you know, running with gas masks, uh, avoiding tear gas and, and water cannons. Enough, you know, and the wire is full of those pictures. But like the challenge to look behind what motivates those people, that's something that's People wanted it as well. It was it, it was well picked up, and uh, people in Hong Kong loved that story because they could f see that there's there's depth to it. There's more to the story than just the uh, the scuffles in the streets, right? The North Point story, you know, it shows an entire district of Hong Kong, and it's a fascinating. It's one of the oldest districts in Hong Kong, and you see a lot of. Street scenes and people in old shops and in markets, and you get a sense of like what the city is about, you know, like and why people love that city so much because it's so unique. The way it feels, the the smells and the, the colors and the density of it. There's no city like it, and I was trying, and I hope in some ways I managed to like bring that out a bit with that story. 
I'll throw up links to those. People should check them out. I'm curious to go back and look at them myself. What else was I going to say? Oh, I, I do find that, like, yeah, sometimes I get in arguments with photo editors, not the photographers, the editors who don't want to send a photographer on assignment, and they'll be like, it doesn't sound very visual. Right. And I'll be like... I mean, all the photographers I know, like, they could make a rock interesting, like, if they put their mind to it. But it's more about if they're invested in it, they always can. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. The editors, I think it's always just an excuse because they don't want to cover the story, don't want to budget it, don't want to, you know... But I'm like, I don't know. I never buy the, it's not a very visual story. Like, Yeah, thing. no. And, and you know what, like the, the argument you can always bring, and that's the fascinating thing about photography is that there's this old adage, yeah, that like a picture says more than a thousand words. It is true in some ways, but what's actually more interesting is that pictures and texts form a much, much stronger message in combination, right? So you can take a picture of an empty street, which in and of itself means nothing. But if you explain that the street is empty because of constant bombardment and shelling in this city, then suddenly this empty street assumes a much deeper meaning. And it becomes a fascinating picture that forms in people's heads because it talks about fear, talks about refugees and the the, 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 the absence of life, right? So it's that combination of, of pictures and words that, that is very powerful and that every editor should embrace that, you know? So if a story is not visual, then you can make it visual by forming a strong connection between the picture and the, the text. Yeah, that makes me think of, I, I read this piece about domestic violence by Ellen Berry. And it describes this whole woman's journey till she gets uh, killed by her partner. And, you know, it, it just the description of like, she was working in this motel and all this sort of things. And then there's a picture of just a building, the motel, but like, because of the description and me, it did mean something more. It did seem like, oh, this is this dark, grim place and like left an impression. This is where it happens. Yeah. This is where it happened. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. So, next up is the lightning round, which is faster paced questions. Um, do you feel ready? I'm ready. What's the best journalistic article piece that can be in whatever medium that you have consumed recently? Well, one that really blew my mind was a story that I read in The New Yorker. It's called uh, The Other Afghan Woman by Anand Gopal. And I hadn't, I didn't know him. I mean, I looked him up later and he's a well-versed journalist and writer. He knows the country very well. And he describes the story of women in rural Afghanistan through the various... Uh, Occupations, starting with the Russians, then the period of the warlords, and then the Americans arrive. And you see that war, which we consume in the West often, obviously, through the eyes of embedded journalists, and that's through the eyes of soldiers or the more urban population. But having the insight of how the rural population, in this case, it's uh, women in villages in the Helmand province, endured the various overlords that was fascinating to see and i don't think i'm spoiling anything when i say that the americans and their occupation doesn't come off the best in that story and interestingly some of these women actually felt safer under warlords who were as cruel 
and inflicted as much violence on them as the indiscriminate raids the Americans inflicted on their villages. But it was more predictable. Violence then was as violent but more predictable than the night raids that came in the form of American night raids. And it's just like, you know, I won't give away too much about the story. It's very personal and it's, it's, it's interesting. And it does one of the rare things that you see in journalism, which is looking at the world through the eyes of women, because it's often men, especially from those areas reporting, who then often tell the story of men. But this is how women lived through that period of, of their life. Yeah, well. I'll have to check that out because, yeah, Anand Gopal, I also hadn't really heard of him, but then he's won like this overseas press club award like three years back to back or something insane. So he must be incredible. Yeah, it's, his insight is amazing. And it's uh, it feels like he was there with them sitting next to them as they as they experienced what they did. It's such a you know fascinating piece to read. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I struggle with this question because trading with anyone, you don't really know what you wish for because, you know, you trade with what you project onto their life, what you see, but they might have dark corners. You might be trading with an alcoholic sociopath, right? But I will give you this. I wouldn't trade with the entire life of someone else, but I would trade with certain experiences and, and, and one experience of a writer that I find absolutely inspiring was a journey of Rory Stewart, who's, who's now an MP in the UK, and he was a travel writer at the time, and he walked through Afghanistan in 2002, just at a time when Afghanistan was still seen as this sort of like lawless death trap where you couldn't leave your compound without armed guards. And he just like walked from the Iranian border to Kabul, purely relying on his trust in the goodness of people. And along the way, he met rural villagers, village elders, former rebels. And he describes a fascinating country that still relies on the medieval civilization that has persisted throughout the hardship it encountered for generations. It's a great read and it's beautiful prose as well. But that experience I would, you know, I would trade yeah, I've read that book. It's really, really great. I mean, it's incredible. At one point comes across like an archaeological site that is just like being right. completely looted and like just incredible stuff he comes across. Let's see. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? I spent time in a Japanese jail. Oh, really? Yeah. What, what happened? <laughs> Someone claimed I was a terrorist and police believed him. And then when they figured out I wasn't a terrorist, he claimed that I had beaten him up. They believed that. And <laughs> um, they booked me into a pretrial jail where I spent about one week with two Yakuza gangsters who didn't speak a word of English. I don't speak Japanese, but uh, we got on. <laughs> they, they'd been in the cell for, for a year Jesus, wow. And I got there and I was like, guys, you got to work out, man. You, you, Japanese cells enough beds. There's just like a carpet. 
And I was like, you, you, you can't be stuck in here for a year. And like, so we, I introduced an exercise regime, like uh, calisthenics to them. Like we did every morning, like <laughs> you know, push-ups and sit-ups and squats. And we weren't allowed to do this. And the guards always came and tried to stop us, but they <laughs> didn't really know how to stop the foreigner doing that. Yeah, the thing was dropped. They dropped the charges after a week for lack of evidence, which was unsurprising since I never touched this guy. But yeah, that was uh, my short insight into the Japanese prison system. Yeah, wow. Did Reuters freak out that you had been thrown in jail? Well, first first they were like, where the fuck's Tom? You know, like I didn't turn up for work. <laughs> I was able to place one call after a couple of days and then I told my boss I'm in jail and the bureau chief came and vouched for me and, you know, telling them I'm a lawful person. And I think that helped the process along. But bureaucracy being bureaucracy, nothing went fast. So it took a few more days until they, they let me go. Wow. How did the food compare to China quarantine food? It was kind of similar in its simplicity and blandness, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bento box, miso soup and a dry bun and a piece of soy tofu. Yeah. It, wasn't, it was nothing to put on weight, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Can't work out too hard. <laughs> no, no, I can't bulk up on that stuff now. This is a question that, I don't know, seems a bit ridiculous to ask you because uh, like of how many experiences you've already told us. But I've started asking what is the coolest, weirdest, strangest, most surreal situation, whatever, that uh, your job has taken you to. So I like to call it the like, pinch me, I can't believe this is my life moment. It was probably my time I spent with nomad reindeer herders in the north of Mongolia who live near the Russian border. It takes about three days to get to the nearest village. And then they come down from the mountains on reindeers and they picked us up. And we rolled on reindeer backs into the mountains to their camps. To the one camp where, you know, we stayed with Erdu, who's a Duha. Duha is the, the people, is the, they have their own language with his family. And we stayed with him for a week and we traveled to his friends who were dotted around the forest, uh, sort of a day ride distance. And, you know, picture forest, you know, as far as the eye can see, snow covered, there's lakes and creeks. And you sit on the back of a reindeer and uh, in front of you is this big Duha reindeer herder guy wrapped in a fur coat made of like animals he shot and you go like i can't believe i'm doing this <laughs> yeah wow that's crazy and uh did you publish a wider image or something of that yeah there's there's a wider image story on that as well it's the the Duha reindeer herders of mongolia cool oh what is your most embarrassing journalism related story um that's probably when I woke up in the art gallery as a modern art piece with a cracking hangover um, <laughs> in Moscow. So I was at the time doing this long-term project. I told you about the art group Vaina, and they were a most rebellious, crazy bunch of people who they never drank when they did any of their actions, sort of their happenings. But when they drank, they drank hard. 
And that night, uh, they celebrated the birthday of one of the founding members, and it happened in an art gallery, which they had for the night because they knew the owners. And we drank vodka all night, ended up playing football in the art gallery, and at some point, I just passed out in the corner. And in the morning, I woke up and opened my eyes, and there was a group of visitors. <laughs> Like going along and I came around the corner and I looked at the pieces on the wall and uh, Aliek, who was the founding member whose birthday it was, he, being a much heavier drinker, better drinker than I was, he was like wide awake. And he took that group around the gallery, explained the art pieces. And when they came to me, he was like, and here we see the German journalist. This is a modern art piece uh, to show the <laughs> prostration of uh, the Western media to, you know, like whatever you said, like some spiel. And I just opened my eyes. I could barely lift my head. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> That's hilarious. That was embarrassing. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, yeah, it is journalism related because I understand you had to get in with the group really well to be able to cover the happenings. You had to basically, yeah. You need to gain their trust. Yeah. Which I, I, I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Yeah, yeah. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why can be fiction or nonfiction? One writer I like a lot who used to be a journalist and he writes often in the first-person form is Sergei Vlatov, who's a Russian writer. And he has this one book called The Compromise where he narrates again in the first person as a unemployed Soviet journalist who's also called Vlatov. And this character Vlatov, he goes through his clippings he wrote as a hack Soviet writer and he then tells the story of behind those articles. And it's like a hilarious, dark and witty look at sort of the double thing that Soviet people had to go through in their everyday life as a coping mechanism. And uh, he reads very well in English as well, because his, his prose is very much, he, he loved the style of Hemingway. It's a very witty, dry prose and reading that really gets you into the mind of a Soviet homo sovieticus in the 1970s. And I love that book and I love him as a writer. So I do recommend it. And then the last question is qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I think I'd like to be like a 19th century map maker who traces coastlines on explorations you know, because maps, before you can conquer the world, you need to have a map. You need to map the world. You know, in, in that period of the time, going to areas that were unexplored or little understood and figuring out what's where, it's just a, f a fascinating combination of travel and data collection. And it ends up, I love looking at maps. You know, it's just a beautiful imagery to me. And in my limited understanding of this job, I imagine it to be quite a fascinating career to have had in 1860. <laughs> yeah. No, I love old maps too. So yeah, that's all the questions. So I guess I'll just wrap up the recording by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Tom. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Thomas Peter a staff photographer for Reuters. 
I'll post links to some of the things Tom talked about in the podcast description and on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you could also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. I'm still looking for help editing the show, so if you're a journalism school student and want to learn a bit about podcasting, please do get in touch with me at foreignpod at gmail.com, and maybe we can work something out for you to get university credit. The show makes no money, so unfortunately I cannot pay for an editor. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, October 2nd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.